back everyone to the Drew and Judy show. Going to be talking about Haiti today. This is the first country on our geography spotlight. Let's get into it. So instead of five or six months, so it's now been only two months since our last episode. <laughs> so we're really improving on that front. We really are. We're proud of ourselves. Exactly. And we mentioned last time at the end of the episode that we wanted to um, have some episodes focused on sort of geography things, talk about some different countries and other things around the world. Yeah, more educational. It's a good way to put it. So we've done that. We've gone out. We've done some research on Haiti. Uh, None of us have ever been to the country, but we're happy to talk about it. Why don't you start us off, Drew? Absolutely. So if you don't know where Haiti is, it is a country located in the Caribbean Sea. It's on Hispaniola. So they share a border with the country called Dominican Republic. But so it's in the Caribbean Sea. Um, it's generally characteristic of many other Caribbean nations, although it is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so it's got, you know, some serious economic problems. But a lot of that goes back. We have to look back at history um, and some of the historical contexts of those times. And I had an opportunity to study Haiti a little bit during my geography class in Latin America and the Caribbean last semester, which I really got a lot out out of. Haiti was occupied by the French um, back in like the 16 and 1700s. They also shared the island with the the colonies of Spain. Spain took the eastern two-thirds of the island of Santo Domingo or Hispaniola, um, excuse me. Yeah, they let the French take the western half, which is Haiti. And that's kind of how that um, border came to be and so forth. And there was some fighting over other islands nearby. But eventually it stayed like that. And as with many other European colonies in this region of the world, they had a very brutal plantation system where they grew cash crops such as sugar and Um, indigo and other such things that the colonists would bring back to Europe and the triangle trade system you probably learned about school where they uh, brought in slaves from Africa and they brought them to the colonies in the new world and they would you know um, take from the earth and you know take their crops and then take them back to European consumers at first this was generally more elite Europeans who could afford such goods. Um, but over time, it became less expensive as they're able to improve and make more efficient the production methods. Um, in the late 1790s, the slave population revolted against the Haitian or the French oppressors. Um, and they also partnered with some Polish and German and other European immigrants that chose to fight with them. And it took many years, but in 1804, they were finally able to triumph over the French um, colonizers who were led at that time by, um, you know, the famous Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, So that was one of his few losses, but a big one because they lost the island ultimately. It was the first ever... um, and the, today, the only successful slave revolts to establish their own nation, which is really cool. 
Um, and they ended up after they they won, they created a democracy of sorts and um, pretty immediately started tearing down all the means of production, the sugar plantations and so forth to get rid of any trace of slavery or having those systems even around. Um, they also burned some of the roads and so forth to get rid of all that past and start anew. They also embraced their African heritage, their African roots, although most of them did it hadn't, you know, come from Africa in a couple of generations because, you know, many generations of slaves had lived there to that point. Um, they wanted to embrace that past and that came to be in their food and culture and language through Haitian Creole, which is a blend of like French with certain African languages that were brought over. But they definitely had challenges um, after they were founded. So the French imposed a hundred million francs of debt upon them, which is an astounding amount of money to try to recover from. Um, that was their price for attaining freedom. Was um, that a hundred million in 1825 or a hundred million adjusted for today? In 1825. So it's a lot of money. That's, that's crazy. Especially for a newly developed nation that has just got on its feet. So yeah, they had that to deal with not only the debt, but they also had countries like the US and France and um, other European countries that were imposing heavy embargo embargoes upon them. Yeah, you know, such as the US and Thomas Jefferson was noted for this. They were very concerned that, you know, this example, slaves revolting and establishing their own nation would um, encourage other slaves in other places to do so, such as the southeastern United States. So they wanted to, to try to whitewash that history and not let that happen in any way they saw fit. So they wanted to uh, lean against Haiti as much as they could to say like, oh, they're, they're not successful. Like it's a crap hole. They can't do it, you know? So other people would be inclined to do it in the future. And Haiti got to work. They knew that it would not be easy. They ended up uh, building the Citadel Lafayette. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but they completed it in 1820. And it's this, um, this huge structure in the mountains of northern Haiti that is designed to fend off uh, future foreign invaders such as France, um, but also others. Yeah, it has a high vantage point. You can see the city of Cap Haitian, I think, um, on the northern coast. Um, and it, I think it was a good idea to do that for military reasons and so forth. Um, and it still exists today, although it's kind of in a, a state of repair right now. Finally, France does recognize Haiti's dependence and independence, I should say, in 1825. Uh, but Haiti does have to pay that debt of 100 million francs. I'm incredibly impressed they're able to do that. It took a lot of time, of course. And there was this continued theme of embargoes against them um, from Western nations. And there were, you know, some really corrupt rulers. They had, they didn't exactly have the best political system, severe economic struggles. Again, a lot of that caused by the embargoes and the disregard from other nations. And they're generally were a agricultural nation. They 
grew a lot of different crops and a lot of people lived in rural areas for most of Haiti's history. And yeah, that's it for about the history part up until modern times, which I think we'll talk about a little later. Yes. So a history that began with mercantilism and slavery and that very notable revolution. But we'll get into the modern stuff a bit later. Onto the geography of Haiti, this dictates a lot of their disaster vulnerability and so forth. And we'll see some consequences of their own actions later. So Haiti is obviously on the island of Hispaniola. It's on the western third of the island. Mostly tropical forest cover. It's quite mountainous, very characteristic of Caribbean islands. It does have one large river, the Artibonite River, in the north of the country. It's That river is the main agricultural basin of the country. It's pretty much the only place you can actually have suitable agriculture because these tropical soils are very poor in nutrients. Just because the plants, because there's so much verdant plant growth, they suck up everything. And so there's very little topsoil. Yeah, poor quality soils, very limited topsoil, which is a problem that we'll get to in a few minutes. And the Artibonite River, obviously very, very important for agriculture, but that river has been absolutely decimated by pollution. And this is mostly a problem of deforestation and the gravel mining. But the idea is that when soil pollutants and sediment gets into the water, it just builds up. It has nowhere to go or it just goes to the ocean. It builds up in places in the river. And the total suspended solids is so high in the Artibonite River that it cannot sustain aquatic life. So there's basically not even fish in the river. It's a pretty gross body of water. Yeah, I saw a picture of it, and the river itself is almost the same color as the sand around it. So silty and and muddy. Yeah, it's really gross. I watched a video of gravel mining in the river, and it's like, you, you can understand why it looks like it does, for sure. So that leads into one of the big environmental problems in Haiti, which is deforestation. And there's multiple reasons for this. Part of it is slash and burn agriculture, but the main culprit is trees harvested to make charcoal. And if you look at a satellite image of the island of Hispaniola, you'll see the you can see the border of Haiti and Dominican Republic just by the tree cover. Because the Haitian side is totally barren, and then the DR side is like full of trees. And you can also see it with the cloud cover, which is really interesting. Because trees will release water vapor out of their leaves into the air, the excess that they don't use. And the evapotranspiration goes up into the air. It's water, and it makes clouds and stuff, and you get rain. But when there's not any trees, you have a lot less of that. So if you've seen images and videos of like the Serengeti in Africa and the grasslands, like there's almost no clouds ever, except for like monsoon season when the clouds come from somewhere else. Yeah. So you can already see that's like the impact of chopping down all the trees has affected their precipitation patterns and rainfall. So agriculture is already so hard there of the polluted river and the nutrient poor soils and the limited arable land and then now you've cut down so many trees that you know you can't get the rain that you need yeah and on a massive scale when you you know chop down all these trees you're taking out 
the roots, right? They're attaching themselves to the earth of the roots. And when you, when you do that enough, you lose that traction and ability to retain the topsoil. And so now we're seeing all the top, you know, a lot of the topsoil across Haiti being lost and it's impacting farms and natural plant life and so forth. And it's, you know, become a serious issue. Exactly. And on that topsoil, a study by Oregon State University, which is one of the preeminent forestry institutions in the entire world, less than 1% of Haiti's land is covered in forest. So about 15,000 acres of topsoil per year are just lost, mostly into the river and into the ocean. Because without tree cover, whenever it rains, all the soil, like the impact of the raindrops and stuff and the surface runoff, it just like picks up all that topsoil and carries it away. And that's where all the nutrients are, is in that thin layer of topsoil at the surface. Yeah, Charles, where was the land cover, you know, a couple of centuries ago compared to that 1% number you gave? It would have been, all right, pre-colonial times, it would have been close to 100%. Wow. As with most of the tropical islands. But even since colonial times, it was still, you know, well above 50%. Yeah, it's like, because it's not mass urbanization that's doing this, even though it's a small island. This isn't like Malta, where it's basically just a city island or Singapore. It's mainly just rampant deforestation that's caused the loss of tree cover. And the example with you know the deforestation altering precipitation patterns, it's an example of climate change where it's like, when you think of climate change, you think of, oh, we burn the fossil fuels you have the greenhouse gases, and then everything just gets hotter. But as we'll talk about later, when we get into the planetary boundaries framework, there is, there's a lot more consequences to human actions than just Earth get hot. And this is an example yeah. of that. You're dramatically altering your precipitation patterns, as well as the ecology. There's no fish in that river. So bad for biodiversity, too. Yeah, people, you know, people want to fish and catch food. They can't do that anymore. Especially in that area in northern Haiti, that's very agricultural and people are have subsistence lifestyles. So that's a resource that they don't have to support themselves by fishing. And we'll talk about the water too and the quality of that. But in the future, Haiti is expected to have future desertification. And of course, it's going to be super hot because of global climate change and lack of cloud cover to repel solar radiation and stuff. So pretty dark on that front. Do you have anything else to add to that, Drew? I think we're going to talk about the planetary boundary framework a little bit, just hit on some of their uh, Haiti's most egregious transgressions so far. Yeah, let's go ahead and get into that. So I think this is something that will apply to a lot of the countries we end up talking about. It's this planetary boundaries framework. It was conceptualized in 2009 by an all-star team of sustainability scientists and um, ecologists and sociologists and stuff. And they came together as to come up with this framework for like, you know, climate change is a lot more than just shooting greenhouse gas in the air. How can we define boundaries for different things like biosphere integrity, carbon 
atmospheric carbon, stratospheric ozone. Like what's the boundary for each of these issues? Is there a tipping point associated where if we go beyond this boundary, then Earth's negative feedback feedback loops become positive feedback loops and come out of control? So we go off on a bit of a tangent to try and make this make as much sense as possible to the average listener. Earth is very resilient to change in that either a natural disaster happens or humans do things and Earth has mechanisms to resist that change and sort of pull things back to its natural state eventually. And a really good example of this is the polar ice caps. The polar ice caps are white. That means when the sun, you know, the sun comes down, all that sunlight, that solar energy and solar radiation is reflected and comes back out. That makes the ice melt slower. So, you know, you're not getting like rapid ice melting. So the natural system of the ice caps, it's keeping the ice from melting just because it's white. So what happens in the summer, especially now where it's really warm, is that when you'll have surface level ice melt so that you know, the, you'll have a little bit of ice melting on the surface of the ice caps and it becomes slush. It's not as white anymore. So it's albedo goes up and it absorbs that sunlight instead of reflecting it, which means it's getting warmer, which means you're getting more ice melting. And then when you get more ice melting and you get even lower albedo, and then you get more solar energy and it keeps compounding upon itself. So that's an example of a, that is a positive loop. feedback loop because it's reinforcing itself and snowballing almost quite literally out of control. So imagine this sort of phenomenon with all sorts of natural systems. That's what happens when you go way beyond these boundaries that have been set in the planetary boundaries framework. So it's like keeping track of like, all right, we need to keep stratospheric ozone below this. Otherwise, we're going to get, everyone's going to get like skin cancer and die because of solar radiation. We need to keep atmospheric carbon below 400 parts per million. Otherwise, the temperature increase is going to go way out of control and you're going to have the sea level rise and the desertification and all the other stuff you see all the time about atmospheric carbon. So with Haiti, I think the main boundaries that come to mind are obviously the land use one. That's because that has to do with forest cover and the boundary for forest cover globally for tropical forest is that we need to keep 85% of original tropical forest cover, which is actually a lot more doable than it seems. This is a boundary that theoretically, unless we go like out of our way specifically to surpass it, it's a boundary that we really should never um, transgress. However, Haiti has transgressed it all on their own. That's what we've seen with 1% of forest cover. So at a regional scale, obviously very, very bad. And of course, the, um, the nitrogen and phosphorus loading boundaries transgressed clearly water pollution, the freshwater use. So I hope that makes sense when I explain about the boundaries. I have lots of literature and if anyone is interested in taking a peek at that, we might put that in our description. But that is the basics of the planetary boundaries framework. It's like for each of these different things, like novel entities, atmospheric carbon, ozone, 
biodiversity, what is the boundary that we can safely stay under and Earth's resi- natural resilience will like, you know, keep us safe and warm and have animals? Yeah, very well said. I hadn't heard of that until you told me about it. So I'm sure it's a new concept for most of us. Yeah, it's not necessarily mainstream. I think some people may have heard of the UN's 30 sustainability development goals at some point. And there's a lot of overlap there. So if you've heard of that concept with the United Nations sustainability development goals, planetary boundaries framework, very similar, just more sciencey. And the literature is harder to read. So yeah, going forward, we'll consider some of the transgressions of other countries. And welcome to a brief intermission, everybody. On a more lighthearted note, our plug today is going to be the World Games 2022, which will happen in Birmingham, Alabama this July. The World Games is an 11-day international multi-sport event organized with the support of the International Olympic Committee. Held the year following the Summer Olympic Games, the World Games 2022 will showcase a new generation of global sports in Birmingham from July 7th to July 17th. An anticipated 3,600 elite athletes from over 100 countries will compete for gold in more than 30 of the fastest growing sports in the world. Some of our venues include the BJCC, Legion Field, Sloss Furnaces, Barber Motorsports Park, Oak Mountain, some really cool events like Canopy Piloting, wheelchair rugby at the Crossplex. We've got flag football. It's going to be just an absolute blast. I'm excited to see the Bull, the French bocce ball. That's going to be great. So head on to Birmingham, get your tickets today. Most of the events are like 20 to 30 bucks for a ticket. Super excited. It's going to be in my hometown and near where Drew likes to hang out. So yeah, book That's it. Right. World Games. Back to Haiti. Um, what should we get to next? We have a few other things on our list. I think we can talk about water security if you want to. Sure. I guess this ties in with the disaster cycle really well because so maybe we should talk about the disaster cycle first and the natural disasters in Haiti because the the water security is kind of a consequence of that. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, so many of you have probably heard about the 2010 Haiti earthquake. It was a seven point on magnitude disaster that occurred on January 12, 2010, and it had massive consequences. You know, you think of an earthquake happening in the U.S., and it generally is fairly contained, and that's because the buildings here, you know, adhere to a certain code, and they're generally built well, and proper materials and so forth. The urban areas primarily affected by this earthquake were not, you know, up to code. A lot of them are built on the fly uh, with less than quality materials. There are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of substandard housing across Haiti. So it's easier to, you know, knock down a building of in that sense rather than, you know, much more well built up one. This particular earthquake killed thousands of people. Uh, it got major international attention and a lot of different charity organizations were sent to deal with it and government organizations. In September of that year, you know, after hundreds of thousands of people were displaced and had to go to more rural areas, usually in the countryside and tent cities and lack of access to electricity or good water, 
um, there is a massive cholera epidemic. And this wasn't caused by the water or Haitians or anything like that. It was actually caused by uh, Nepalese peacekeepers who came in to deal with the disaster. I assume they did not bring it with any malice or anything like that, but they did bring it and um, it spread pretty quickly across Haiti and killed lots of people and caused a lot of pan panic for sure. Now, the natural disasters of 2010 were not done. In November of that year, a pretty large hurricane strikes southern western Haiti. Um, it causes even more damage, displaces more people, uh, affects the water supply. You know, one thing that a lot of people don't think about is that a lot of people are still affected by this earthquake even over a decade ago. Uh, tens of thousands are still living in substandard housing or tent cities and don't have quality access to healthcare or electricity, uh, decent water, plumbing, and uh, disease is often an issue and um, it's, it's just not a good situation. And then in 2021 of last year, amid um, a very heated presidential election uh, and the assassination of President uh, Jovenel Moise um, and you know, political turmoil that followed that, there was another earthquake. And there's also a tsunami warning. There wasn't actually a tsunami. The ocean rose like 0 0.01 inches or something. Uh, glad there wasn't a tsunami, but it killed thousands of more people, displaced even more people. And this is a pretty bad time considering the political turmoil that is going on. And because of this destabilization, it allowed for gangs to gain control of much of the country, um, especially in um, the capital and so forth. There are several different gangs competing, but generally they are anti-government. They're tired of the corruption and so forth and um, want something better. Now, would they replace that with something that would be less corrupt if they gained power? Um, highly, you know, not sure about that one. But yeah, they are blocking off access to roads um, and and water, and they control a lot of that. So it's not a good situation right now for Haiti. It's a, a very vulnerable country, both socially, economically, environmentally, pretty much on all fronts. And you talked about how they had the, all these disasters just like year after year or even multiple within the same year. And that brings up another cool environmental concept. I wouldn't call it cool. It's actually very tragic and concerning, but it's called the disaster cycle. And it's basically the idea. And in places like the United States, right, you have a, a disaster happens and then you have the immediate aftermath, you know, the, the FEMA comes in and, you know, they quickly get people back on their feet. That's like the immediate recovery phase. And then you have a longer recovery phase. And then you have a prevention phase where it's like, okay, next time we're going to have, we're going to have tornado drills in our school. We're going to send kids home early. People are going to have like go get a house in the basement or build a basement in their house. People are going to like, we're going to fix up the sirens and everything. We have tornado shelters. There's like all these things that they can do because they have the time and they have the resources to do this because they were able to recover and get pretty much all the way back 
after the disaster. So when a disaster hits again, a new tornado shows up, they're ready. And, you know, tornadoes will rip up the entire state of Alabama and you'll see like one person died because they got ripped out of their trailer home. So, you know, very successful on that front. However, in places like Haiti and Bangladesh and the south of India that are getting battered by disasters all of the time, they don't have this recovery phase. They're in a disaster, they're in that immediate emergency recovery phase. And then just as they're trying to get back on their feet, another disaster hits. So they don't have the resilience to just overcome disaster after disaster. And that's why you see all these tent cities and stuff are still around 12 years after the earthquake. And this ties into water security because when infrastructure gets destroyed and they don't have the resources to build up their sanitation and stuff like that and their their plumbing and whatever, because like all they can do is just try and recover from disasters. Then you get like cholera outbreaks and water insecurity. So that leads me into a 2012 study that I went out and read. Very good paper. So it's based on a study of water quality and access in the Artibonite region of Haiti. So this is that river basin in the north, an agriculture area. And this was done um, in collaboration with some Haitian officials as well. But they went out and did a survey of all these households up there, and they found that 42% of households use an improved drinking water source. And by improved drinking water, this can include piped water on site, public taps, and protected wells. So it's not like the water that we use. It's not you turn on a tap and the water that's been in all these treatment facilities that's totally clean and stuff gets to come through. Like some of these structures are still fairly primitive. So the improved part, you know, is, doesn't really mean that much as we'll get to. In this same survey, half of improved water sources in this region tested positive for E. coli. This is how you get cholera when, so E. coli is a fecal coliform. It means there's poop in the water because that's, you know, how they, that's how you get sick from E. coli, it's poop bacteria. So this is an indication that this region is very at risk for cholera. And this is in half of the improved water sources. Obviously, we don't have that problem here. There's some more stuff in that paper. If anyone's interested about demographic information and stuff and like the size of the families and social roles and stuff, just to get an idea of that. But some of the improved water, or I guess some of the popular water sources that the respondents um, responded with, 26.5% of households use an unimproved, unprotected spring as the primary water source. Then 17.5% of households use a public tap, which is improved. 16% is, quote, unclassified surface water, which is obviously unimproved. And then, um, sorry, 14.8% use a borehole with a hand pump. If you see a picture of it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, pretty straightforward, but that is improved. So obviously, this is a really big problem because, I mean, nothing will mess you up like dirty water. Like cholera is absolutely no joke. So the Haitian government, you know, has invested a lot in improving water security, but they don't have the resources to go through and put in big treatment plants and like do running water in everybody's houses and stuff. The river is so full of suspended sediments that it's 
it would be prohibitively expensive to turn that into a freshwater drinking source because of all the sediment you'd have to it would take a lot longer than it does here for that process so they use these purification tablets and they found that 86% of survey respondents use these tablets for water treatment within 3 months prior to the survey so that they're basically using iodine pills and they put them on their water and that like cleans the water by killing all the bacteria and stuff and iodine is nasty and smells bad but you can drink it in this form and that's what they rely on to drink their water and then they noted in this study in the conclusion concluding section that the artibonite department in Haiti is most affected by cholera in Haiti reporting the most fatalities per capita of the 10 departments so and then their main idea conclusion is that a water source determined as improved or unimproved doesn't really mean much when half of your improved water sources is positive for e coli so the standards for being quote an improved water source are not very high so that is just one example of the very serious water insecurity in Haiti and that's something we take for granted a lot of time when we can just turn on the tap and drink from it or like take a shower yeah it's it's tough to imagine a life where you don't have access to decent water that's not going to make you sick yeah and this is not i mean it's very bad in Haiti especially in this region but it's not unique to Haiti this is, is there's similar levels of water insecurity like this around the world now cholera is considered endemic to Haiti as a large vehicle drives by my window so endemic just means it's like syphilis in Alabama it just means there's a high concentration of that disease or illness or virus or whatever in that specific part of the world for whatever reason but the idea of i mean water insecurity is truly global and it will get worse with climate change. That's right. And like so the reasons here for Haiti are obviously the environmental situation, economic factors, social factors, so forth. Exactly. The so lack think- of, the lack of infrastructure to be able to, you know, build um, you know, water treatment facilities, plumbing, like decent housing, that sort of thing. Yeah, when you think about the question like how can we fix this or how can Haiti fix this whether on their own or with some international aid it's like where do you begin because a lot of these problems are linked and related to each other you have large scale environmental issues so where do you start and for me personally as i think looking quote breaking the disaster cycle so increasing their resilience to natural disasters and having more effective long lasting recovery strategies i think would be a good place to start as well like the political turmoil that you talked about you know that needs to be addressed as well so yeah haiti i think when you when we talk about haiti and the current state and the history very much a, a nation of suffering and the environmental issues are very much at the forefront so we'll see if some of these themes come up in some of our future countries but do you have any concluding remarks about our Haiti discussion today well i think if you kind of internalize what i said about Haiti's history 
um, of defeating the French colonists and weathering the storm of various embargoes opposed to them by Western nations, I think they ultimately have a spirit of resilience and they've seen problems like this before and will challenge them as best they can. Um, so I have hope for them in that regard. But I, yeah, I think there are serious structural issues that uh, will be difficult to address if everything stays as it is. I'd like to see more international aid and and so forth. And not just tackling, you know, responding to these emergencies, you know, in the short term, but having more long-term plans to help the Asian population and stabilize them and give them access to clean water and housing and healthcare and so forth. I totally agree. And I just wait for that another large vehicle to drive away. Um, there's this, there was a quote by Thomas Sankara, who was the um, communist revolutionary who founded Burkina Faso in the late 20th century. And he was talking about food aid. And he said, just giving us rice and giving us millet, like just putting food in our hands is not food aid. Food aid is giving us tractors. It's teaching us how to farm, teaching us how to be environmental stewards. That was basically the gist of the quote. And that ties into what you said about just like the emergency disaster relief. It's like, that's great. That's obviously very needed. We need to immediately go in and save lives. But you're not doing anything to prevent this happening over and over again. Exactly. Like the phrase, uh, give a man a fish and he'll eat per day. Teach a man a fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. Exactly. But I would also like to see, I know it's going to be difficult, but I'd like to see people in Haiti, um, you know, be more environmentally sustainable, maybe not have monocultures and try to plant more trees to retain the topsoil and, you know, be good stewards of the water and so forth. But, yeah. you know, given the limited resources, I know that's going to be difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. You definitely have to foster a culture of, you know, people have to be their own environmental stewards. And sometimes when people say like, oh, you need to recycle more and like eat less meat. And you can say, oh, well, you know, only the big corporations to make up so much pollution. It's like, how am I going to move the needle? But it's all about instilling a sense of responsibility for your environment and for everyone else's environment as well. That's right. And it's if you do that on a large scale, especially with like the deforestation, it's like, you know, we need to look, I'm not a sociologist or a policy maker expert. So I don't I don't have a solution off the top of my head. But yeah, it's definitely gonna take an both an individual and a collective effort to challenge yeah. these major issues. They need a lot of outside help, but they also need to help themselves. I think that was sort of what I was getting at. Yeah. So a fairly somber start to our geography series. <laughs> but I think a, a nation that brings up a lot of issues with sustainability, as well as a, a dark history, and we tend to whitewash history and make things seem not as bad as they were. So I think kicking off some of these issues and get some of that in to the minds of the viewers.
We have a very interesting and exciting nation plan next. We'll be heading off to the continent of Africa, but we won't spoil it outside of that. But if anyone is able to guess what we're going to do next, we'd be very impressed. But that will conclude our episode on Haiti today. If you listened this far, made it to the end, really glad you did. Let us know what you think. We'll see you next time. Cue the outro.